I think when you, there's a group of you, like because we share information, you learn a lot from each other and different areas. We're all different genres that we write in, which I think is, can be healthy. So if you're focusing more on the craft rather than the genre. But with a group, you'll have someone who's in a down or someone's in an up. So the energy is rarely all down. So when you're down, people that are up help to lift you. When you're yes. up, you'll help bringing them up. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today I'm really excited about the guest who is joining me on the Convo Couch. As many listeners will know, many regular listeners, I am part of a fabulous writing group called The Inkwell. Previously to being called The Inkwell, it was actually called The Writer's Dozen and we started out in around 2004, so that was almost 20 years ago, scarily. And it was a group of 13 writers, hence the Writers' Dozen, who decided that after a year-long course at Writing New South Wales, then the New South Wales Writers' Centre, we wanted to continue meeting and we met fortnightly. And over the years, people dropped off, people stopped writing or went back to full-time work. But every second Wednesday, a bunch of us would meet at Writing New South Wales and workshop our novels, support each other, do what writing groups do. Now, over the years, as I said, people left and numbers dwindled and we invited a whole bunch of new people in and decided to give the group a new name for the new membership. But one of the very original members of that group, along with me and a few other people, was Terry Green. So I am so excited to have Terry Green on the Rights for Women Convo Couch today. Because Terry is someone who has just hung in there and hung in there and continued writing and just continued building her confidence, her craft, her skills, just trying a hand at all sorts of different genres, which we're going to talk about today, and has, for the time being, settled on historical fiction. But before we get into chatting about kind of staying in it for the long haul, which is really what I want to talk to Terry about today, amongst other things. Let me tell you a little bit about Terry Green. So like most writers, Terry was one of those kids with her nose perpetually stuck in a book. We can all, a lot of us can relate to that. She wanted to be a children's author when she grew up, but detoured into physiotherapy instead. And writing was put on the back burner for a long time. It was a winding and convoluted path that finally led her to be a writer of historical fiction. Along the way, Terry collected a few short story prizes and a PhD, just a little PhD, in creative writing, otherwise known, in Terry's words, as a doctorate in making things up. I think you'll start to get the vibe from Terry's bio that she's actually quite the hoot. It wasn't until Terry spent three months in the UK on a writer's residency 
became a Shakespearean-era theatre groupie and learnt how to wield a sword that she made a foray into historical fiction. In 2022, Terry released not one, but two novels in the Sisters of the Sword series, The Swordmaster's Daughter and An Unsuitable Pursuit. Both are set in the early 17th century, filled with feisty women, men in tights, and plenty of swordplay. And yes, there is a double entendre there. There's also a dash of romance, generous lashings of intrigue, and a whole lot of girl power going on. And there will be a third instalment very soon. Terry, as I said, is a long-term member of the same writing group as myself, now called The Inkwell. Previously, the writer's dozen. And when she's not writing or doing things to other people's bodies, in a purely professional way, of course, you might find her fencing, hula hooping, or eating dark chocolate, or playing with her gorgeous dog, Mabel, or perhaps riding her electric scooter. Terry has a fabulous newsletter too, which you can sign up to, and I'll put the link for that in the show notes. But now it is my absolute pleasure to have Terry Green on the Rights for Women podcast. Terry Green, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you for having me. I've just done the intro and I've let all the listeners know about our connection through first the Writers Dozen and now the Inkwell and, you know, about your long-term career in writing and your genre hopping, shall we say. I use a ruder word, but that's right. We may mention that word. During yeah, the, we, the course of this interview. Terry, before we get on to talking about your fabulous historicals, which are out now, can you just run us through what you would say is your path to publication? Well, history or pathway? Oh, good question. I guess a bit of both. Okay. I'll try and do a pot of history because it's rather long. I never do anything in the easy way. Yeah, I always wanted to write. I like a lot of writers, but as a kid, I wasn't one of those ones that wrote lots of stories, but I just read. read. And then thought about doing journalism or English and history at uni, but came from quite a really pretty working class background, really, middle class aspirations. And so I wasn't encouraged to do that. I was encouraged to get a job, you know, do a course where you could get a job. And I was the first person in my family to ever get a degree. So, but it had to be practical. So I did Fusera instead. But that was always there that yeah, I think you yeah, just had that urge within you. And then babies, families, dramas, all that stuff, but somewhat in the way. And then I really got back into it as a way out of grief, basically, which has been unusual because my eldest died just after her 13th birthday, which after her 13th birthday. And writing was like grief counsel to tell you. So I started writing and I started writing poems and I sent them away and they got published. So I thought, okay, I might be able to do this. So then I had this idea of a movie in my head. So now I had a course on screenwriting and I wrote a screenplay, as you do, and I had a director and producer interested in it. But when I looked at them, I thought, she didn't have that much of a track record. They were more kind of indie. And I got too busy and I just shelved it because I'd also found out that most movie screenplays are more likely to be adaptations of novels, certainly in Australia. So then I thought, okay, I'll write a novel. <laughs> Why not? But in the meantime, it's still weird. I randomly saw a psych. I was out with my husband having lunch. I was a psychic. Sorry, um, just repeat that, Terry. You saw a psychic. Okay, just to yeah. clarify. Yes. Don't just read pathway to find me. And I had my daughter's ring on, and she was a psychic who used 
items, could be jewelry, clothes. But anyway, so I gave her a ring, no information, never met that woman before in my life. And she started, she came out with my daughter's name within about two minutes. And that was the neighbor friend's corner because her name was Jennifer. So she kept saying, I'm seeing this girl, I'm getting Jenny, and said, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that's what I thought. I better pay attention to this woman because I'm a little bit of skip, but I'm open thing. And then she, part of this, she told me a few things about family, which didn't eventuate. And then she just kept repeating, you must write. You must write. Oh, wow. So, I did not know this about you, Terry. I've known you for nearly 20 years. I didn't I know, know you wrote a screenplay and I didn't know about this. Well, I just thought it was in the, in the feats. And she, all, the other thing she also told me was, oh, I don't feel like a really strong sense of humour and you're good at making people laugh. And I was thinking about this a novel, more serious novel based on a screenplay, or this crazy, silly idea. And that was when I met you because we did the first draft, page to first draft. That's right. I think yourself was a writer's centre because I've been doing courses at the writer's centre. But I wasn't writing a novel. I was writing how to manual book, how to train a man based on dog training principles. I remember it was so funny. I loved it. I know, but locking up with you see. But people have read it. I had it professionally edited and the editor said, actually, not really good advice. Like people. And then just as I was starting to rear it in the vague hope someone would take it up, um, a show came out in the UK with a woman who was a dog trainer helping couples with their problems using dog training principles. There goes yes, that. Of course it did, yeah. So then I wrote a kid's book because I was driving back from our writing meetings and this idea just locked in my head. And this kid's book and the characters really fully formed. So then I wrote that. And then I also had the time I said I just needed a bit more guidance. So I enrolled in a, I was tossing up, Careerized between a postgrad certificate in occupational health and safety would have paid my money, or certificate in creative writing. So guess what I chose? And then, and they really liked the kids' book, and it got into a development with the publisher, and then the GFC hit. So next plan, I thought, oh, I my uni supervisor was really encouraging me to do a master's. They had an idea for a young adult, so I wrote in the master's and wrote a young adult which took me six years to write. But that was because it messed with my head. It turned into a PhD. And can I just interrupt and tell everybody listening out there, it is absolutely fantastic. I've read it and it, I, you have to get that out in the world somehow, someday, Terry. As I said, to every publisher, it has a disability theme because I'm a physio, but I, so I like writing about redemption and recovery. Basically, that's my thing, recovery. Getting through the hard times get into a better place. It just didn't get up, but it's a very Australian story. So I knew I wasn't going to get up overseas. So I just, that's my one big weep cry. Why? I did briefly put it online, but I, yeah, I may publish that. So. But it kind of broke my heart a bit. And then I wrote this other young adult book, which in hindsight, probably is a young adult book, should have written as an adult, which you call it show. And that was about surrogacy. And that's when I was thinking, doing... Uh, but I just finished the PhD, so I'm Dr. Terry. Yes, Dr. Terry Green. I should have introduced you as that, actually. Sorry, Terry, that was my bad. Yeah. I didn't tend to use it in my other career because then they think I am the doctor, but I'm not. True. Yeah. yeah. So and you also did, I don't know if you were going to mention this, but you also did a writer's residency in the UK. I'm coming to that, yes. yes okay, yes. good. 
in the meantime, I also was trying out romance and I wrote a rock, like a kind of really raunchy romance before it became a thing. Then I had this idea for a young, there was a residency in the UK and it had to be set in the UK. So I was coming up with young adult ideas set in the UK. And in the meantime, my husband and I had gone on a trip to England and driving along, I just heard this story about boys that were kidnapped in Shakespeare's time to perform in the theatre. I was what? Amazing. I've never heard that story. And I just, that was the germ of the idea. Came back to my writing group, who are the sounding board of all. And they said, I said, I've got this contemporary idea or this young historical idea. Which one should I put in education? And you all said, historical. So I said, okay. So I called together this proposal and you had to say what you're going to do. And I looked up because I'd done the PhD, I found out I could get into the archives of the Globe and Shakespeare's Trust, which was amazing. So that sort of gave me an in there. So I had a little bit of academic credit and I got the residency and my family were big enough and ugly enough that they didn't need me around. And my husband's really good cook. So for three months, I went and tried to write this novel. But basically, I researched it and sat there on my own pulling my hair out. But anyway, I did eventually write that novel. And then that novel is sitting in a drawer. But I have used that novel to now launch the series that I'm writing now. So that's about it. Yes. And just in case anyone was interested, I have to use the phrase because, Terry, everything you have just said demonstrates that you are a genre slut. And there's just no two ways about it. I know. And proud, proud of that. And proud of my running it around. But it's not a great career move. This is a problem. Because I felt like I, they were all like good and they got, you know, interesting. So I won a few prizes along the way and I won a Commonwealth Shot Story regional prize. Okay. So I had that reinforcement that, as the psychic told me, you must write. And then the affirmation that, you know, I can write. Then I just had to learn to write something that would be more commercial. And mm. which I have done, but I knew it wasn't great for this market in Australia. Yeah, we'll get on to that. Yeah. So but that's a potted history of my weird straight. A potted history. And I love it. And the reason I love it, and I mentioned this in the introduction, Terry, is that you've really stayed in it for the long haul. As anybody out there who has written novels or is working on a novel or is anything to do with the publishing industry knows, it is a really difficult industry to break into. It's difficult to stay in and it can be very disconcerting and disappointing and discouraging to send off submissions and queries and all that sort of thing, which I know that you have done lots of over the years. I know that there have been disappointments too, and I'm sure that there have been many times where you've just thought, bugger this, why am I doing this? But you've never let it deter you. You've kept going. And I just love that about you. I'm stubborn. Yeah, yeah. I think it has to be a writer in a positive way. If you're stubborn and won't accept what people are telling you, that maybe you should mm. do, giving you good advice, that's not a good stubborn. People that won't change their work or don't want to evolve. But you do have to be stubborn in that to keep at it mm. or you would just give up. Yeah, definitely. Were there particular things along the way, Terry, that sort of kept you kept encouraging you, like that kept you thinking, yes, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. Were there certain things when you think back that, that did give you that encouragement? 
Yes, and it's a mixed blessing. So I felt like I was the mouse, just giving me like, you're allowed to have a little bit of nibble of the cheese, but you were never getting the whole cheese. So that intermittent reinforcement, like, that just made me want to do it all the more, I think, because I got close a few times to publication. Editors, I would read what the whole manuscript and they'd like it and they'd be what to being considered and everything and then to get back, no, we don't think we can market this or no, whatever. But I think the hardest part yeah, was my young Anna. That was the one time I said, oh, I don't know what else I can do because people that had read it that know literature and books said this is really good and he was a teacher that this would make an amazing HSC absolutely but industry said no yeah and look I think that's absolute proof that if anybody never needed it that the fact that you don't get published with a certain book is not reflective of the quality necessarily of the book or the manuscript. It can be there's so many different factors from, as you say, like we mentioned the GFC, it can be timing with what's going on in publishing. It can be just whether it, it fits a, ne- a particular niche. It can be whether something, another book has recently come out that's in that vein it's similar that can put a publisher off. So there's so many different reasons why your book might not get accepted that might not have anything to do with the actual quality. Yeah, and that can be really discouraging for writing. But having a writing group was the thing really kept me going because I trusted your opinion and because they're all, you're all really good writers. And if and I was getting edited some external editors at different points too, and they were saying, no, it's not writing, it's just luck, market timing. Keep at it. Yeah. You know? right. Which you did. Which I did, yeah. No. In a different way, yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about being in a writing group and how that's helped you? Because I know there are some, as we all know, writing can be quite a lonely pursuit. And there are some writers who prefer that. They like to just keep their work to themselves, not necessarily have that collegiate type of work process, I guess, not really get feedback. But how have you found that experience of being in a writing group, particularly over that long time? Found it was probably the thing that kept me going. And partly, too, I think when you, there's a group of you, like we, because we share information, you learn a lot from each other and different areas. We're all different genres that we write in, which I think is, can be healthy. So if you're focusing more on the craft rather than the genre. Yes, but with a group, you'll have someone who's in a down or someone's in an up. So the energy is rarely all down. So when you're down, people that are up help to lift you. And when you're yes. up, you're help bringing them up. So I think that group dynamic, if you're in a group where everyone was really critical or miserable, then you would leave. But I think we always had that side. And we laughed and whinge and complain about the nature of publishing. <laughs> That's right. We have to do that. We have to vent, don't we? And we celebrate each other's wins and we are there to commiserate with the losses or the rejections or whatever. No. Win can feel like your win too, especially if you maybe gave some feedback at the start of the war or that people, someone was struggling and then we're going to help a sort through the finished product. So I think it's just that group dynamic, but you've got to have a group that's open and caring and mindful of its feelings, but not mm. being too nice in terms of nice in terms of how you treat people, but a critical eye when you're looking at the wall. Yeah. And, and the other great thing too, isn't it, is that everybody brings a different skill set to the group. Like for instance, Terry, you are queen of the blurb. Whenever we need a blurb done, it's definitely, Terry, get onto this. Yeah, it's weird. I can do other people's. It's hard to do your own. But yeah. I think that might be just 
my physio background because I'm having to condense a lot of complex information into a simple form. True. When I'm talking to people all the time. Maybe. I don't know. Whatever. You're very good at it. So we all appreciate that. (laughs) So as you mentioned, you, you got into the historical fiction after the residency and you do have another novel in the drawer, which featured one of the characters, a few really, but definitely one of the characters, and gave you the spark of the idea for what has become a series, The Sisters of the Sword. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how, you know, you, even though that one is in the drawer, how that has then sparked off this whole other idea? And I guess Lucinda we really need to talk about because she is the most fantastic protagonist. She did come from that original manuscript and now she has a whole story and a whole world of her own. So tell us about Lucinda. Okay, so Lucinda in the book is in the draw because in the theatre they used to do a lot of sword fighting on stage and as this boy who was kidnapped in the theatre, he decided wants to decides he actually wants to stay and learn. So he start, organises for himself to have lessons at a fencing academy with a master swordsman who's called Swordmaster. And he has a daughter called Lucinda. She had a twin brother who died, and that's her big thing, that she actually thinks that the boy should have lived. So she's always trying to be that boy. She's trying to be that replacement boy to her father growing up. And then, and she she teaches Nathan how to sword fight, and she was just such a great character. I just loved her. She is fabulous. Yeah, she's just really feisty and like her, says what she thinks, probably too much, especially for a woman of that era, but she learns, she gets old and wiser and she was just, because she's such a great character, I just thought she was just like, she's sitting here saying, tell me my story, tell me my story. So I said, okay, I will. And then and she really had this idea that she, when she realises that she can't get sword fighting with the men tending to be a man that's just not going to happen but she's a woman she's got to take on all this and she's also grandma's midwife and she's training her to be a midwife she's being pulled more into the female world but she loves fencing so she sets up by a series one or two coincidences but not too many kind of too many of them this group of women who mm. need to know how to spend themselves because either they move in dubious circles but some of them have been assaulted. So she teaching them how to defend. And they call themselves the sisters of the sword, not in a rude way. Correct. Yes. Because context is all. There's maybe that's what they're going, but not a lot. So, so now she's, she's gathered this group and it's turned into this bit of mystery, bit of action, adventure, bit of romance. But that's what I like about historical because mm-hmm. it can be everything. Other genres are much more defined in some ways, but historical, you can have a whole lot of different elements. So, which I think suits my personality. Definitely. Lucinda came from that original story, which, as you yeah. say, is in a drawer for now. And you've drawn on a lot of the things that you found in the research that you started on that residency. But as you say, it's very pro women, feminist. That's the word I'm looking for. You've added yeah. this kind of feminist layer to it. And that's not to say that there weren't back in that day, but you've definitely got a modern perspective looking back on that historical time period. How did you go about blending the historical fact and then knowing how far to 
then take the fictional elements of your story that you then wanted to insert into that time period. It's just a judgment call. And the interesting with historical is like you can't use words of the era. Even if you use one or two, they stick out. Yes, you can. Stick out like dog's balls. Yes. Yeah, so you can't, you can like have the odd one or two in context. Like instead of saying pregnant, I'll say child. Yeah, because that's Deborah Sage. Yeah. But but I am also very careful that there's certain, I've used a couple of actual real people in it. So I've taken some of the elements of their life and you sort of have to stick to the timeline of what happens in that year. So I look, okay, what happened in that year? And the second walk was the gunpowder plot. So I said, okay. Oh, so now I ran up all on the gunpowder plot and knew what happened. And then I thought, I'm going to insert a woman in there. And there's different ways I could have done it. But in the end, I had a sort of sideline into the plot. Yeah, but I'm kind of rewriting his, which you are. But, and that's the fun bit. Mm. But if it's what I found in the first book was I was, had too many real characters trying to stick to the history too much. And then you lose your plot. You can lose your, like it's a series of events and it can be a bit episodic rather than having the, you know, shape of the plot. Yeah. So what, if you notice, if you read any stroke, what you notice is, unless they're doing kings and queens and they've been done to death, and I'm more interested in ordinary people, then it's often better to have a known event or some of the side characters as real people, but your main characters as fictional renditions mm. because then you can play. And I think they've always been feminists because by feminists I mean it's just people that think that men and women should have equal respect. Yes. And then the opportunities were a lot more limited. But mm. in some ways, women were more respected. They, mm. But in a very narrow sense. Yeah, they had to operate within the confines of that right. society, yeah. didn't they? Like, you stay single for very long. Once they married her kids, if they lost their husband, you know, if they, or, or wife, they would marry again pretty quickly. Especially men, because they needed a woman to run the household. Because men didn't know how to do it. Because work was, you know, it was a lot of work. So things were much more compartmentalized by gender. Mm. But there's little tantalizing references in history to women that did sort of fight. And I thought, sure. You and the girls that are out, like my sister was like, that. she was out playing with the boys and kicking a ball and girls weren't allowed to play soccer. So there's, I think there's always girls that, that are attracted to that. I think that's right. And there's always been women that push the boundaries regardless of what yeah. time period they grew up in. So let's get on to the sword fighting because yeah. as part of your research for the book, you yourself took up sword fighting. Yeah. They're like big, strong men. Yeah, I started out doing stand defense, which I really liked. I was in England because I found there was a fencing club there and it was a good way to get out, meet people, keep them and make acknowledgements. So that was really fun. And then I, when we came back to Sydney, so I found another fencing club and kept going. And then I found out about HEMA, which is historical European martial arts, which is basically But they use all like issues to like these big long poles and those cudgel things and yeah and across different areas and there's different specialists there happened to be a specialist in english rapier of the period right on my doorstep Perfect. so yeah yeah so i took myself along to classes and i've had to drift in out because i was working in state and doing all sorts of other stuff but there's such a lovely welcoming community really eclectic mix of people and they've just been really welcoming. And I wanted to know how it felt like. I had to initially know, well, like, how heavy are these things? Yeah. Can a woman do it? So I did make my heroine talk 
and strong because she'd been carrying weapons and doing it since she was a kid. And women, I think, were strong because we're fetching and carrying and doing a lot more physical labor than we are now. Yeah. Can I just interrupt to say to everybody that Terry is not a tall woman. She's what you would call diminutive. But yes, definitely go you on wielding the sword. Yeah, yeah. So I get clonked on the head a lot because in him, I can clonk on the head and they just chop your neck off, chop your arm off, all that and stuff. So I just have to go low and change, cut them off at the knees or sneak in. I love it. And you had, of course, sword fighting and a sword fighting exhibition at your book launch, which was amazing. I did. Yes. So yeah. that was really fun. Yeah. It's about just giving community. Yeah. 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 It's really one of those ironies. People that are learning how to basically viciously kill other people. Interesting. Anachronistic weapons. What sweetest love is. <laughs> Never make judgments about people there. So, Terry, let's go back a little bit. So, when you, wait, what year did you write or first start writing The Swordmaster's Daughter? 2019. 2019. Okay. So, yeah. three years ago, going on four, I guess. Yeah. And we've been through kind of your history with writing. You've been writing for a long time. You've done a whole lot of things. You've done a lot of submissions. Yeah. What made you make the decision to decide to independently publish the books? I'd pitched at an RWA and one person told me they thought it was a bit too YA and I took that on board and I realised, actually, no, I just had a little few little things to change so that it wasn't, didn't sound YA and but she wasn't interested. And another person in America, because I thought maybe people like it in Australia, but it's a broader market. It's set in England, London, in the 1600s. So that is not, oh, yes, that'll sell well in Australia. So I knew from a market's point of view, if I was a market, I'd be going, this better be freaking amazing, or why would we bother? And it's not World War II and it's not Regency. What is it? Mm. We care. And it's not literary. So I... Pitched it to an American publisher who was a large, small publisher, if that makes sense. The largest of small Yeah. A large independent publisher. And she really liked it. And she said, we like the story, love the concept. She said, but I just can't bring it to market. Because all we're selling at the moment is World War II, Regency, a little bit of Scottish. Right. Well, I said, cute. Because that is all I needed to know. That tells me it's not the book, it's the market. Plus, I knew I had a controversial thing. So, progress. here's something deal with sexual assault, but it's, I'll use the yeah. outward, but mm. it's very much an anti-rape. It's about recovery and bringing perpetrators to justice. But I knew because it had the R word, that again is a hard sell. So I thought, no, I just, and I'd also had friends that had you know, traditionally published and independently published. So I knew the pros and cons of both. And yeah. I thought, well, this book, this series, and when for indie, a series is better. For indie, whereas traditional publishers, nah, they're not so much interested because unless the first book sells really well, they don't want to sell on the series. But for an indie, that's how you make better money is because people buy the first one if they like it, then they'll buy the rest in series. So I just, for those reasons, the subject matter, the market, because it was, I wanted to write a series. And I thought, and hey, I'm not getting any young. She just thought I'd make things. So once you made that decision, how did that then impact, I guess, the writing of the series itself? Because you'd already decided at that point it was going to be a series. How did it impact the writing of the books and then when you would decide to release and all that sort of thing? Didn't really, because I had two written and I was working on the third. What it did do was hold up me finishing the third. I'm only really getting back into that now because it was such a huge learning curve because you're learning a whole new job, basically, and actually lots of people's 
because you've got to be person of the commission cover design, you've got to do your own marketing, you've got to I learned to do my own formatting, but you've got to get time do all the timings, the editing mm. and uploading it and learn how how Amazon and Kobo and all these platforms work. And so it's huge. So I just started reading because like I'm actually quite good researching and then and I take notes and I'm not super anal about it, but I had a little list and I had a few little spreadsheets of stuff that I really needed to keep track of and just worked at it a bit at a time. And you have to be an event planner. One of my son's girlfriends was going to event manage my launch and the poor girl got COVID two days. right. You know, like I'd done most planning, but anyway. Yeah, and catering. I didn't buy a bloody catering. I know you had those gorgeous little cover book covers made on the cakes and and in the meantime I've been trying to be more on social media even though like I struggled with this brand concept and in the end I thought it's just me that's and you're the brand that's right I'm I'm a bit mad I like a bit of fun bit of serious stuff bit of hula hooping a bit of hula hooping that's right yeah so I had to work on that and the whole newsletter thing and so many elements to it but I think you just gotta like any job or any new thing you just well, I can do this bit and then I add this bit and then I add this bit and then I add this bit and broaden your skill set. So for anyone out there thinking about it Terry about taking the leap into independently publishing what would be your kind of top top bits of advice for them your top tips? Your homework? There's a lot of advice out there. Learn from the people who have already been doing it well. It can get confusing if you're like, why would do it? But pick a few trust, trusted things. And like I said, learn, do it in chunks. Check all the bits that you can. If you can afford some things that you really hate doing and not source them, like I'm going to outsource my accounting. Yeah, we're not numbers people. Because you know why? I hate maths because there's only one answer. True. Whereas I hate maths because I can never get the right answer. Yeah, just like it because it was one and And like they try and teach you to do it this way, like this way. Yeah, whereas writers, you go, oh, could you pick We like this multi channel. True. Anyway, that's my theory. So, yeah. yeah, so outsource whatever you can. Make sure you're in place. You've got to get a professional and fabulous looking cover. So, you need good cover design, not just off the shelf. And the fronts are really important too. And you need mm. editing. Yeah, you want it to be as professional well, as you can get it. Yeah, And you need to pay someone to do the whole lot. There's a really great program. Now, I've been using Atticus because I'm not an Apple person. And it's actually, there was just one thing that I spent two days. That was for the formatting, wasn't it? Yeah, yep. formatting. And once I figured out this one thing that was driving me crazy, then it's actually pretty simple. So it's worth doing. Yeah, Some of that yeah. Stuff. It's the same because I did mine on vellum mm. and because I've got a Mac and that was pretty intuitive. And once you've done it once or twice, it, it does get a lot easier, doesn't it? Yeah. And then you can make changes back or whatever. Whereas if you're paying someone to do it, every time you need a change, you got to make And webs, that was the other one that's coming to. You need a good website. And I did it and put that off for so long. And then finally I had someone lined up to do it. And then my son said, no, you can't let someone else do it. I'm doing it. They're yeah. the main thing. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, you present to the world. Your product, because basically it's a product. Yes, it's your baby, but it's a product. So you mm-hmm. have to, and thinking of it as a product makes it less difficult when you get criticism of people don't like it. And you say, well, not everyone likes McDonald's, but I heck, a lot of the big people do. You know, That's a great analogy. Yeah, I love that. Weirdly likes chocolate. That's fine. 
So if you, yeah, if you just think of it, it's product, then a creative bitch mm. that has taken pieces of your soul sometimes. That's not what Correct. So you're working on book number three now, Terry. Give us a little insight into your writing process. And I have to say to everybody listening, Terry has done all this while not necessarily holding down a permanent job like for years on end, but very much working outside of writing as well for a lot of this time. So share with us, Terry, how you managed to get the words done and the book finished and the editing and all that sort of thing done, as well as working. I've actually found that I'm more productive when I do a bit of external work. When I've had periods where I haven't, I've just kind of did that. So I, I know I need some external stuff a little bit. And then and then you have to be fairly disciplined. I'm also at the stage now where kids are up my hands. My husband is a great cook. He does all the cooking and shopping. So I'm really lucky. But even when the kids were younger, like you just snatches of time when you can. And I just think it's like any big project, you have to just break it down into small chunks. Some people like word count. I find that word count does my head in a bit. I like looking at it at the end, but I find if I try and aim for a certain word count, I get a bit anxious about it. So I'm going to, I just think of it in scene. This scene, and then I move on to the next scene, and the next scene, and the next scene. And I'm not much of a planner, but like I'll stop about a third and then have a think and then work out the next bit and then have a think and work out the next bit. I don't know where I'm going at the end, but everything in between, I've got to figure out as I go along. And I actually, this was, I don't break this down because I was at work to this training stuff at the moment. And I was proud about this concept called strategic slacking. Well, I like the sound of that. Yeah. So where working less makes you achieve more. And then it went into this stuff on your attentional brain networks. But, so basically you have two attention networks in your brain and they function like a seesaw. So when one's on, the other's off. When one's up, the other one's down. So I have to read this so I get this right. So there's one focus which is usually is called the positive and one's called the negative. And the one that's the positive is like much more focused, attending to a task, deliberate attention. And the other one is when you're not paying attention. You might be doing some other mindless task, which is why when writers are walking or shower or doing the ironing or it's your daydreaming date. And... People traditionally would see that as wasting time and not doing mind work and productive work. But actually, that is when your brain neurons make connection and when you get inside building. So I sort of find I do need a lot of that daydreaming thinking time to figure stuff out as I go along. Yeah, that's something that's come up a few times, particularly in the last 12 months, I think, with different authors who I've interviewed and them saying they've come to this realisation that they need to set aside time, like Kelly Rimmer, I know was one, set aside time for that daydreaming and see it as part of that whole process, not time wasting or procrastinating or whatever. It can be, it can be, but if it's used at a certain point, yeah, or you could structure your day. So when I have days when I'm not at work, doing four days a week at the moment, so when I'm home days, I try and make sure at some point you go out for do some writing and then if I've got to have a think about what comes next, maybe go for a walk. Or do some housework or something like that. And then, so you're breaking up, you're sitting at the computer. So what I'm saying yeah. is sitting at the computer for a whole day is not necessarily productive. Yeah. It's not physically good for you either, is it? Yeah. 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 Some writers that can do that and just falls out of them, but I think they're rare. 
and some people dictate, but I just haven't got my head around that yet. But, yeah. So that's my little bit of wisdom. I love that. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. You so you are working on book number three. Give us a, if you, can you give us a little quick rundown on what happens in each of the books? I know that you're still working on three, but I know you've got a bit of a vague idea of where the story's going. Okay. In the first book, Lucinda and her sisters of a sword, when they discover that several of them have been victim of the same, they figure out who's probably the same person, they decide to try and find out who it is and bring him to justice. But in the meantime, Lucinda has met this rather handsome young woman whose uncle is politically connected and runs a whole spy net. Mm. And those two things collide. The women's front of the protagonist. And then when the Robbie, his sister, unfortunately, becomes one of the victims and then Lucinda helps out because of her background with her grandmother. That's right. So in the first book, their romance is building and but because of their because they come from very different social backgrounds. Strutters, yes. Writers, I felt like I couldn't and you see this in historical fiction. It's just not realistic to get them together from the get go and or to have sex with that didn't happen. There were too many reasons that couldn't happen. And I thought it would take me three to develop the romance. Or well, turns out I spent that up a little bit. I don't want to give away too many spoilers. No spoilers. So the romance is deepened and developed and very much challenged, again, by circumstance. Because at the end of the first book, Lucinda is drawn into this world of spying and has no choice but to become an informant in a spying at right. fencing academy. So that's where the second book kings off, kicks off. And because she's now meant to be watching things and because a whole lot of Catholic, because the background then was there was, the Catholics were very unhappy because they thought with James that she, first coming in and his wife maybe having Catholic leanings, that things might be made a bit easier for them. But in fact, they were actually made worse. And they were, if they didn't go to church, to Anglican church, they were fined. And the fines felt to be really quite punitive because there's a great revenue raise of Dutch. <laughs> yes, funny that. Yeah, yes, funny that. So there are a whole lot of reasons. So the Catholics are very unhappy. So there's a lot of discontent and there's Catholic Swarthman at her father's fencing academy. So she's basically, which is then how she become involved in the uncovering of the gunpowder plot. That's right. Yes, which was really funny. Any hints on book three or are we keeping that under wraps for now? Really? The next show, that's 1605, 1606, there was the Queen Anne, who made James I, was from Denmark and her brother was King of Denmark, King Christian, and he was a massive drinker and womanizer. He kept in his diary a record of how many, what nights he had to be carried to bed because he was too dark. Yeah, and he had many mistresses and many children. And when he had a man of big ideas, he had a big navy and he was wanting to have three crowns because he had two. He had been like in Norway and he was up Sweden. And so anyway, he came for a visit, 1605, and it was like this debaucherous, drunken festival. And at the same time, there's political background of, King wanting a Scottish Parliament and going to the UK. It's got a lot of parallels with Jane. That's what I really love about it. Mm. Like, look at all these parallels. The Scots 
didn't want the parliament join the English parliament. They're happy for the king to be in England, but not the parliament to be brought from England. And the king, that's when the Union Jack was developed. He designed the original flag. So he was pushing the Union 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 and had stuff designed. And then there's a theft that threatens to undermine cordial relations between the Danes, Scots and the English. And Lucinda is slap bang in the middle. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, this, yeah. I can't wait to read it. Like anybody listening, it's like page turning. Terry, you've just managed to get that neck of injecting it with all that historical detail without overpowering the story and the characters are just so engaging that it's just wonderful reading. So congratulations because you've done such an amazing job. Thank you. Now, just before we wrap up, we are going to go on in a minute to record the four curly questions for the Patreon listeners. But one other thing that I know you've had great success with as an independent author is BookBub. So for anybody who's listening, whether you're trad or indie, can you tell us a little bit about BookBub and how that's worked for you? Well, it's a site where readers basically can get free books or discounted books. And it was one of the first ones to start up. And for a long time, if you get a deal on BookBub, then then you got huge visibility, basically. But you usually need a couple of books. I've only got two, so it's not as great, but it's a great way to get you bumped up the charts and basically Amazon, but there's spillover too. And when you're independent, it's all about getting visibility. So first of all, I had to, I used a couple of these sort of reviewing sites where you can put your book and people get it free with the provisor that review it. They review it, but they don't have to give you a good review. You know, there's no obligation at all for a good review. They just have to a review. So that initially got me going. And then somehow I got a few good reviews and I got good reads. And then I just applied for a book box, but I was a little bit strategic because you can, to do the US one, really expensive. And that's the Holy Grail. And I thought, oh, they actually, firstly, they offered me a new release, which is okay, but they're not that great. But then I thought, I'll just open one. There's one that you can do UK to US Canada. And it was like, half the price. So I thought, I'll give it first. And if that goes well, then I've got a bit of chance of getting a full on deal. And I did. And it set the book to, like, for a couple of days, you know, we're just in that. Take everything you can get. I won on quite a few charts of Brilliant. And number one and number two, and number one prize in this UK, Canada, Australia. And it, oh, even though it wasn't a deal in the US, it, because I think people were downloading it. And now around, they've only been out, first one came out in August, second one came out in November. It's soft to launch. And I've had over 10,000 downloads. So oh, brilliant. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with that. No, no it's great. Sharp percentage for a lot of giveaways, but it doesn't, it gives you visibility because you're not. That's right. Because the more people that download the book, the higher up the charts it goes, the more people yeah. then see it. So it's that circular thing. And show it to people and we'll figure out, oh, these are the people that kind of like mm. it. But also, but I'm not just on Amazon, I'm also on Spotify. And I've just, that's just started to kick up a little bit. Okay. The Canadians, because I've got a few reviews on Coburn that I saw, Canadians seem to like my stuff. Maybe they're like sort of fighting more than guns. And Apple, which is the other one that seems to be. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Congratulations. It's and you can just go and some people will download it and never read it, but if enough, read it. You'll get more. And then, and it has this, they like that, and then they buy the next one. Yeah. And they get notified when the next one comes. That's right. Yeah. So 
get ready, everybody, for book number three. Any idea when that's coming out, Terry? Do we have a date yet or we just... No, because, again, I was being a bit optimistic because I shouldn't have known my process this stuff. Like, I've got to figure out, because they're kind of mystery. It's not, I don't want to denigrate romance, but romantic plots tend to have a much more definite path, whereas yes. this, I think it's like a double helix watching. Okay. You know, all these strands going on, and sometimes it just takes me a while. So I was hoping for May, June, the next one. But it will be this year. It will definitely be this year. I'm hoping for two this year, but I'm thinking yep. one, definitely one. Yep. Brilliant. Yeah. Congratulations. I'm just so excited to be able to let everybody hear your story, Terry, because as I said, I have so much admiration for the way you've hung in there and just powered through and you've got such an inspiring story and you're such a fabulous writer. So I know that everybody listening, a lot of people are going to get so much out of this chat, but where can people find you online? Is any audio producers out there? Oh yes. Terry does have books available if any audio book producers are out there. And are interested. Um, you can order through Amazon. I think you can order through Topia. Don't quote me on that. Certainly you can order hard copies if you want through Amazon. And ebooks, pretty much anywhere you get ebooks. Anywhere. So, yep. On Blow and Co. Below. You can't get Barnes and Noble, but it's on Barnes and Noble. And the library. You know, I think the libraries have to buy it individually, don't they? Yeah. So that's another thing I haven't explored yet. So like I said, that one thing at a time, that's something for later. Yep. It's on the list. On the list. And what about on socials, Terry? Where can people find you and your website? I probably hang out a bit more on Insta for fun stuff and me just being me. And on Facebook, I'd probably try and be a little bit more awfully. But at those, I'm Terry Green Author. Terry with an I, green like the colour. Yep. And terrygreen.com for yep. your website. Yeah, if you do.com.au, you'll all redirect there anyway. Thank you so much, Terry. We are about to chat, as I mentioned, for Patreon peeps. So if anybody would like to hear more from Terry and hear how she's going to attack the four curly questions, definitely sign up for Patreon and support the podcast. So thank you, Terry, and congratulations. I've been very well behaved too. I'm very impressed. Well done. Bye. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>